Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 8. Is Psychoanalysis Effective? Findings from Psychotherapy Research. In this episode, we would like to devote ourselves to empirical psychotherapy research in the field of psychoanalytic treatments. Psychotherapeutic research means, among other things, investigating through clinical studies whether a certain psychotherapeutic technique is effective in the treatment of mental illness. It is therefore a question of effectiveness. How psychoanalysis works and what exactly happens in the therapeutic process, these are questions that so-called process research is concerned with, to which we will dedicate another episode. Why is this question of effectiveness important at all? Is it not enough for patients to decide for themselves whether it helps to work together with a therapist, whether he or she is getting better, be that with a psychoanalyst, behavioral therapist, or even a witch doctor? Clinical studies are ultimately always based on a large number of patients that are statistically evaluated and statistics do not necessarily say anything about an individual case. As illustrated by the example of the non-swimmer who drowns in a river, although it is on average only one meter deep. On a societal level, mind you, it is always about large numbers and less about individual cases. Say when health insurance companies decide which therapeutic procedures to authorize for their members and for how long. A procedure is only considered scientifically sound or evidence-based if a large number of scientifically reliable clinical studies involving a large number of patients can prove its effectiveness and, where applicable, its superiority over other procedures. However, one is confronted with certain difficulties and ultimately even limitations when attempting to study the effectiveness of psychotherapy procedures beginning already with the question, what exactly is being studied when investigating the effectiveness of a psychoanalytic procedure? From episode one, we already know that psychoanalysis is not a single uniform practice. Rather, it is a very diverse field of different approaches and procedures, which, despite having a common core, can also differ considerably. Psychoanalytic therapists usually do not just follow a single standardized approach, but become acquainted with different treatment methods during their training, and in clinical practice, adapt their approach to the individual patient and his or her problems. Psychoanalytic-oriented therapy can take place once a week, while sitting, or many times a week, while laying on the couch. The session can be structured very openly, and for an unspecified period of time, or may follow a specific, narrowly defined psychoanalytic treatment concept. Consequentially, the field of psychoanalytic psychotherapy research is extremely diverse, and it is indeed difficult to reduce all research results to a single common denominator. Despite the diversity and multiplicity of research on the effectiveness of psychoanalysis, one of the central objections to psychoanalytic methods 
is the persistent preconception that there is no scientific evidence for its effectiveness. One objection, however, that is unfounded. There are many hundreds of empirical studies on effectiveness for almost all forms of psychoanalytic therapy that have been published in top-ranking international scientific journals. So on a professional level, the criticism that psychoanalytic procedures cannot provide proof of its efficacy is untenable. This is perhaps much more the result of certain ideological reservations, for from the very beginning, research on psychotherapy has always been a battlefield between different conceptions of mankind, ways of thinking, not least between different economic interests. In the appendix to this episode, we have included some of the most important meta-analyses of psychodynamic procedures, as well as an overview by the Swedish researcher Peter Lillengreen on more than 200 so-called randomized controlled studies in the field of psychoanalytic-based therapies. In addition, Jonathan Shedler's article from 2010, as well as Peter Fonagy's work from 2015, provide a good overview. So, is there scientific evidence for the effectiveness of psychoanalytic procedures? The simple answer to this question is yes. The effectiveness of psychoanalytic procedures, from shorter interventions to long-term therapies, has been proven in a number of empirical studies. We will now try to present the state of research in a few points. As in all scientific fields, there are no definitive truths here either. The studies are part of a scientific process and debate that is not uniform, but rather develops through critical objections. At the end of the episode, we will discuss some fundamental considerations, and most importantly, some of the difficulties of psychotherapy research, including the frequent comparison between psychoanalytic and behavioral therapy methods. But first, to the results of empirical psychotherapy research. Here, too, the sources are listed in the appendix. Number one, findings on the effectiveness of psychoanalytic-based short-term therapy. Short-term therapy usually refers to a therapy that consists of 20 to 25 sessions maximum, sometimes even less. Here, approaches specific to a particular disorder are often highly effective, i.e., short-term treatments that are adapted to a specific illness. So, for example, certain approaches to the mentalization-based therapy method have achieved good results for borderline disorders. Recent studies have shown that dynamic interpersonal psychotherapy is clearly effective in the treatment of severe depression. Psychodynamic imaginative trauma therapy has in various studies been able to prove its effectiveness. Various psychodynamic techniques, such as imagination techniques or the so-called screen technique, have long been integrated into other trauma treatments. It has also been demonstrated that psychoanalytic short-term therapies are effective for other disorders, although in comparative studies there is ultimately no systematic difference to analogous short-term behavioral therapy interventions. Both methods have shown similar results within a similar time frame, and both are superior to so-called control groups, 
a comparative group of patients who, instead of therapy, either did nothing, were on a waiting list, or received coaching. While the effect of short-term therapies was indeed noticeable for both therapeutic methods, it was not always overwhelming. Number 2. Findings on Long-Term Psychoanalytic Therapies What exactly is meant by psychoanalytic long-term therapy hasn't quite been defined uniformly in the research literature. Roughly speaking, it often concerns therapies lasting multiple years, with the scope of at least 50, often more than 100 hours, in which therapist and patient see each other every week for one to two hours. We will talk about the classical psychoanalytic setting in a moment. There are various meta-analyses of this field of research, which we have added to the bibliography of this episode. Findings show that compared to shorter forms of treatment, long-term treatments have an additional effect. And all target criteria under investigation, both in terms of symptoms and functioning on a social level, personality traits, as well as how patients report their quality of life, patients experienced additional benefit from a long-term approach. This is especially true for patients with complex and chronic mental illnesses, such as severe forms of depression, personality disorders, chronic anxiety disorders, or eating disorders. Complex illnesses often require a long-term approach to treatment, which shouldn't really be surprising. Noteworthy are the findings from the Helsinki study by Paul Knecht and colleagues from 2010, and the London Tavistock study from 2015 by Peter Fonagy and his colleagues. Here, two groups of chronically depressed patients were studied. One was treated with short-term psychodynamic therapy, and the other with long-term therapy. Immediately following the end of therapy, no significant differences between short-term and long-term therapy were found. Both were able to alleviate the symptoms to a similar degree, which initially meant short-term therapy appeared to be the more effective form of treatment. However, once the patients were interviewed three years after the end of therapy, clear differences appeared. For patients with short-term therapy, the effect of therapy had decreased significantly over time. After three years, many of their complaints had reappeared, whereas the therapy results for patients with long-term therapy were stable, even three years after the end of therapy. Long-term therapies are thus more sustainable for this type of disease, although this too isn't necessarily surprising. Some studies even found that the effect of long-term psychoanalytic therapy continued to improve even after the end of treatment. Studies on economic efficiency have also demonstrated the lasting benefit of psychoanalytic long-term therapies. They demonstrate that after therapy, the higher costs of long-term psychotherapy pays off over time through a lower number of sick days, medications, visits to the doctor, etc. A study of about 900 patients by Saskia Demat and her colleagues from 2007 shows, for example, 
that cost and benefits cancel each other out about three years after the end of therapy. So from that point on, the healthcare system benefits economically as well. These findings also indicate how important it is to study the long-term effects of a treatment in order to assess its effectiveness. A questionnaire about the patient's condition immediately following the end of therapy, as is unfortunately often done in research, is usually only somewhat informative. The classical psychoanalytic setting, i.e. three to five hours per week over the course of multiple years, is certainly the most difficult, also most expensive, and most laborious field of research, which is also reflected in the amount of research literature produced. Nevertheless, there are a number of empirical studies that make it possible to judge effectiveness. Even for highly frequent psychoanalytic sessions, various studies from recent years have shown that their strength in treating chronic diseases lies, most notably, in their greater sustainability, and which has also been added to the bibliography. Also worth mentioning are the comprehensive catamnesis studies conducted by researchers, but also by health insurance companies, in which patients were interviewed after the end of psychoanalytic treatment. For example, a series of studies from the 2000s showed that high-frequency psychoanalytic therapy has a lasting therapeutic effect. So, for example, in the Stockholm-Berlin-Heidelberg studies, here the effectiveness of therapy remained stable three years after the end of therapy or showed a continuous improvement in well-being even after the end of therapy. The higher number of treatment hours came along with a sustained improvement of symptoms, sense of self-worth, and professional performance. A further series of studies have also been published recently. For example, the so-called LAC study by Marian Leutzinger Bolleber from 2019, which deals with chronic depression. In this study, patients were randomly assigned to long-term psychoanalysis or long-term behavioral therapy. Under both experimental conditions, patients benefited from long-term therapy with no difference between the two procedures in terms of reducing symptoms. Behavioral therapy, however, took fewer hours to achieve the same degree of reduction in symptoms, whereas psychoanalysis succeeded to a greater extent in bringing about structural transformations in patients, that is, ensuring a positive change in identity and personality. That sums up the findings of effectiveness research. We would now like to shed light on some critical aspects of psychotherapy research and address its limitations. As we heard in Episode 7 on the scientific nature of psychoanalysis, the scientific approach to grasping psychic processes is far from indisputable. Empirical studies are not without their own presuppositions. And even if they are methodologically flawless, they are not a mere image of reality. The design of studies in psychotherapy research are usually drawn from medical research on effectiveness, such as drug studies. So-called randomized controlled study designs are considered the gold standard. However, 
these also contain a number of methodological problems that always arise when a pharmacological or biochemical research model is carried over into the study of human experience or interpersonal relationships. Critical discussions on these trial designs have been attached to this episode. However, some presuppositions and forms of thought are not only implicit in the design of the trial, but also in which questions are being asked in the first place, and even how they are being posed. For example, what determines a successful therapy, and how should certain results be interpreted? This then becomes especially important when comparing different procedures. Those who want to investigate mental illnesses must have an idea of what a mental illness is and what therapy or healing ultimately means, and on this there is no consensus among the different methods. Every therapist, regardless of the school, would indeed recognize distinct psychic symptoms such as panic attacks or compulsive behavior as a problem. But in many cases, the problem is either not at all so clear, or what is considered the dominant symptom is one part of a much more complex, multi-layered set of issues. Is it really the panic attacks that are the problem, or perhaps rather their underlying cause? As in the following example, a patient, a young adult, Suffering from panic attacks notices, for example, that the symptoms most often affect him when driving to his workplace. In the psychotherapeutic discussions, it turns out that the patient is actually very unhappy with his work. He would have preferred a completely different profession, but at the same time, he cannot imagine a change because he has the feeling that he must fulfill his parents' expectations. He continues to have great difficulties separating from his parents, is afraid of their judgment, and does not dare to go his own way in life. At the same time, he recognizes with increasing horror that he is in danger of missing out on his own life. Are the panic attacks really the problem here? Or are they not rather the starting point for dealing with these underlying issues? The more intensely one attends to an individual person, the more individual his or her problems usually become. And the primary psychic symptoms, this, albeit, is already a psychoanalytic perspective, often lies only on the surface and usually, over the course of the treatment, yields a completely different set of issues. Presumably, therapists of all methods would try in their own way to treat the underlying problems. Modern approaches to behavioral therapy are in no way merely a means for eliminating symptoms. Nevertheless, the different methods have their own ways of thinking about, classifying, and defining therapeutic success. And yet, which diagnostic system is used to classify patients in a scientific study, and which type of questionnaire or interview is used to assess the success of the therapy, naturally has a decisive influence on the results. Where therapeutic work actually takes place will depend, though, on where the problem is perceived to be. A researcher must know the therapy procedure under investigation very well in order to know what effectiveness could even consist of, and thus how they can measure its success. One comes to learn 
only about that which one is given to inquire. Psychoanalytic research has its own additional diagnostic systems, such as the so-called PDM, or the OPD, its own questionnaires and interview procedures, with which the development of certain psychic processes can be described, such as the so-called Reflective Functioning Scale by Peter Fonagy and his colleagues, the Inventory of Personality Organization from Otto Kahnbeck, or the Chedler-Weston Assessment Procedure. In this respect, it is not surprising that one of the strongest determining factors for the predictability of effectiveness within a psychotherapy study is which school the researcher is affiliated with. Behavioral therapists tend to ascertain the effectiveness of behavioral therapy, psychoanalysts the effectiveness of psychoanalysis, etc. In specialist literature, one also speaks of the so-called allegiance effect, i.e., the researcher's loyalty to their method. This does not have to be malicious manipulation. This influence is quite justified and understandable. Whoever is well-versed in their field knows how the procedure works, what ailments it addresses, how its effectiveness can be measured, and how best to design studies with this in mind. A heart surgeon will indeed know better how to recognize a successful heart surgery than a lung specialist, and vice versa. The problem is only when heart surgeons begin to evaluate the work of lung specialists on the basis of standards for heart surgery. And unfortunately, this happens often enough in psychotherapy research. Finally, we will return to the topic of comparing the efficacy of different methods. As we have already heard multiple times, the most intense battle in psychotherapy research is between behavioral therapies and psychoanalytic therapies. Modern approaches, such as behavioralist schema therapy or psychoanalytic mentalization-based therapy, try to integrate different aspects. In actual practice, the differences between the two methods can sometimes become very blurry, as the famous study by Ablon and Jones from 1998 shows. Ever since psychotherapy research has existed, reference has also been frequently made to the so-called dodo effect, named after the famous race in Alice in Wonderland. Everyone wins. Everyone deserves a prize. In other words, in comparative studies, the performance of both methods is, in the end, always similar. No method is completely superior to the other. And yet, behavioral therapy and psychoanalytic therapy are different approaches with differing methodologies and distinct conceptions of mankind, not to mention ways of thinking. Whereby, diversity can certainly be understood as something good and beneficial for the psychotherapeutic landscape. As far as the reduction of symptoms is concerned, the state of research on effectiveness cannot ultimately identify any significant differences between the two methods. Both are effective. Both have developed variable treatment concepts that are helpful for a large number of mental illnesses. But both methods also have their limitations. At best, behavioral therapy tends to be more efficient in reducing symptoms 
than long-term psychoanalytic therapy, whereby psychoanalytic methods tend to have a more long-term effect in transforming structural features. And yet the findings of psychotherapy research are a broad field and are often contradictory. At last, we want to pose the question of whether it even makes sense to compare different methods. This starts already with the question of what time frame is used to study a method. In some of the earlier psychotherapy studies, researchers measured the reduction of symptoms after about 25 hours of treatment. They established that after this period of time, behavioral therapy was far better at reducing symptoms than psychoanalysis, whereas this was in reference to classical psychoanalysis. The only thing is, after 25 hours, behavioral therapy is usually finished, while classical psychoanalysis has only just begun. It's a bit like comparing a 100-meter sprinter with a marathon runner and asking after 100 meters, who is ahead? If we were to ask after 1,000 or 10,000 meters, one would surely get different results. But is such a comparison still up to date or even meaningful? Can a marathon runner be better or worse than a sprinter? It is a serious question whether the different therapy methods are really working on exactly the same problem and have the same goals. As we have heard, reducing symptoms is the smallest common denominator. Perhaps a comparison is only of limited use, because behavioral therapy works on a different level of psychic suffering, has a different conception of illness, and is oriented toward something quite different than psychoanalysis, so that, via some generic overlap one is in the final analysis, actually comparing apples and oranges. Perhaps one should rather ask where the respective strengths of the methods lie, what a therapist can learn from a specific approach, which approach might help a patient best. This would mean making use of the plurality of forms of therapy as something valuable. Ultimately, psychotherapy research can only ever represent a partial aspect of therapeutic reality. A psychotherapy, no matter the method, is always something creative and individual, which questionnaires and clinical interviews cannot capture completely. Psychotherapy concerns the entire person, their history, their wishes, the missed and hoped-for things in their life. Over the course of therapy, many patients come to discover everything in their lives that they have neglected or not done either because they were under the spell of early conflicts, or of a different life story, or because they have only just discovered for the first time who they really are. The answer to the question of what psychotherapy is supposed to achieve varies greatly from person to person and is not easy to answer. But undoubtedly, it has something to do with freedom. First and foremost, it's about symptoms but also other demons of the past and present. And with this comes greater awareness of who one is or who one wants to be. Many patients, especially after long and intensive therapies, change their life plans once again. 
take up studies that they have previously denied themselves, proclaim their sexuality, or even first come to discover it, and much more. Things that at the beginning of therapy could not have been foreseen at all. To what extent such processes should be paid for by a publicly financed healthcare system is another question. We do not want to deliver a verdict on this, but even so, would like to point out that perhaps the human psyche is not actually made up of such strictly separated compartments, allowing mental health, happiness, contentment, and consciousness to be treated separately from one another. And, with regard to so-called efficiency, surely a problematic term when it is a question of the human soul, perhaps those who are a bit more at peace with themselves, with their histories, their desires and inclinations, would be more productive and even more helpful to others in what they do, whatever that may be. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.